You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. to introduce Mikhail Kritikov. He is currently the Preston Tisch Professor of Slavic and Jewish Studies at the University of Michigan. He also is currently the Chair of the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures. So he's uh, a busy man administering. Um, I do not know if all of you are aware of his work, uh, but he's uh, a very prolific scholar. Um, He started out with uh, his dissertation, which turned into a book. It was Yiddish Fiction and the Crisis of Modernity, which was published by Sanford in 2001. This uh, deals sort of with early 20th century stuff, a lot of stuff that I would say would, in this context, around the 1905 revolution. Um, Then in his second book, which came out a bit later, he did From Kabbalah to Class Struggle, Expressionism, Marxism, uh, and Yiddish literature and the life and work of Meir Wiener, who was uh, one of the leading uh, Yiddish critics. Uh, he emerged out of Germany. He's done a lot of editing work with uh, Gennady Estreich. Um, out of, they've been publishing out of Legenda, which is a press which is nearby Oxford. And they have about nine volumes on various topics uh, throughout Yiddish literature and culture. One relevant for the upcoming uh, lecture is um, Three Cities of Yiddish, St. Petersburg, Warsaw, and Moscow, all Krika cities, they didn't include New York because you needed to have credibility here. Um, <laughs> that uh, he's got a forthcoming book from Indiana University Press about their minister, uh, Pinchas Kahanovich, um, who is a leading Yiddish modernist, uh, and he goes by the pen name Der Nister. So the title of that book, and he's been told me a bit about what he's going to be writing about, not just the standard stuff, he's bringing in a lot of stuff into the discourse that hasn't been talked about, and the title of that book is Der Nister's Soviet Years, Yiddish Writers as Witness to the People. So look for it this year. Is it already on Amazon? Uh, No, no. Um, Actually, I don't know. I just got proofs, so. Uh, I I think it's already on Amazon, so put in your pre-orders. That he is continuing the Michigan Jewish literature's trend uh, with his next book, which is dealing with uh, urban spaces, representations of urban spaces in Jewish literatures. Um, and we look forward to that. And just as a side thing, the final thing is he is a leading person within the world of Yiddish. He uh, worked with Sovietish at Heimland, which was a big time uh, Yiddish uh, journal within the Soviet Union. But since arriving in the United States, he has been writing for the Yiddish Forwards. He deals with cultural issues. If you have an interesting book on uh, Jewish topics in whatever language possible, you will get a review uh, in Yiddish. And based on these, I'm assuming, it is moved into a collection of what he's published over the years, sort of judging the cultural moment. And that uh, collection that recently came out, correct? It's called Swiss Insurance uh, Between the Lines. And it is sort of for, if you want to know what's going on in Jewish studies and you read Yiddish, I, I would recommend that collection. So without further ado, I will let him get to his topic, which I do not think was formally uh, done, but I'm going to read off the slides so you can check my, my reading skills. Between the Nile and the Neva, St. Peter, here I'm blowing it, St. Peter, Petersburg's multilingual Jewish text. It's really great to be here again. And... Uh, 
I'm, I'm really very excited to present you with this work, which is uh, very much a work of prog in progress, and uh, it um, has to do with my, as Philip just described, with my new project on urban space in Jewish literature, where, to put it in one sentence, I think I'm trying to look at urban space as uh, objective correlative to Jewishness, whatever Jewishness means. So today I will try to explore this on the case study of St. Petersburg. Just for a change, I'm not going to speak about Yiddish literature today, even though uh, Yiddish is part of that project, but I felt that I couldn't really fit uh, a few Yiddish novels into one presentation on top of everything else. So I, I will leave it aside, but mm, I will say a few words at the end if mm, I still have time. So as I said, uh, it is about uh, urban space and Jewishness and how Jewishness, how Jewish writers feeling themselves Jewish, and I'm not going into any discussion of what is Jewish literature. Uh, I'm interested in writers who um, are reflecting about their own Jewishness and who have a particular attachment to a certain urban space. So in this case, it's the space of St. Petersburg, uh, Leningrad. And this is the period that I'm looking at is the, from the early 20s to the early mm, 1930s, uh, 80s, yes, 1930s, right. So uh, just uh, without too much of an um, introduction. I will uh, start with uh, one of the key texts uh, describing this uh, Petersburgsky text, St. Petersburg text in Russian literature. And uh, this is a uh, very well known in Russian studies uh, article by Yuri Lotman. Um, and this is one particular statement that I am mm, using and I will be referring to. So the highlights are mine. And for your convenience, for those of you who can read Russian, I have uh, all this text in Russian. There's slightly uh, more of the text here in the handouts, um, and uh, there are a few Hebrew texts in the end. Uh, so it's just that you can see translations are sometimes mine. This translation is not mine. It's, it's not really perfect, but it's a bit of a convoluted uh, language. But if you start with this, mm, uh, with this uh, statement, uh, the city is a melting pot of text and codes belonging to all kinds of languages and levels. The essential semiotic multilingualism of every city is what makes it so productive of semiotic encounters. The city being the place where different, different national, social, and stylistic codes and texts confirm each other is a place of hybridization, recording, semiotic translations, all of which makes it into a powerful generator of new uh, information. So, I'm particularly interested in that kind of semiotic multilingualism and kind of languages. Even though Lotman and Kaparov also works a lot about worked a lot on that uh, theme, they work exclusively with Russian literature. Even though Kaparov mentions in one uh, footnote that it would be interesting to look at the Jewish case. Anyway, uh, that's what um, I am um, doing. Uh, just uh, before. We move to mm, the particular readings, particular texts that um, I want to look at. Um, a few words uh, about the situation of Jews in St. Petersburg uh, before 1917, before the uh, Russian Revolution. So I think, well, as everybody knows, that uh, Jews in the Russian Empire were confined to the so-called the Pale of Jewish Settlement, a large territory in the Western provinces, uh, and. Uh, only uh, privileged categories of Jews were allowed to live outside the pale. Others were wealthy uh, merchants and business people, professionals, 
such as lawyers, doctors, uh, pharmacists, um, students, and some categories of uh, artisans. St. Petersburg uh, had even uh, more restrictions on Jewish settlement, obviously being the capital uh, of the Russian Empire, and yet, uh, of course, it was a very attractive place for many Jews. Apart from being the home to Russian Jewish elite, to the bankers, to the most prominent lawyers, who also played a role in politics, uh, it was also a place for where many Jews reside illegally. Uh, we don't exactly know how many Jews lived in St. Petersburg. Figures are about between like 14, I think 20,000. Probably there were more people. There were also people who would come and stay there uh, uh, temporarily. Uh, and uh, they stayed there, they paid bribes to the police, they um, got kind of fake uh, employment papers. Anyway, they behaved like illegal immigrants everywhere. I think the story is quite uh, familiar. Uh, and quite paradoxically, uh, by 1905, St. Petersburg emerged as uh, one of maybe the uh, cultural capital of Russian Jews, even though the city was officially, as it were, closed to the Jews. Nevertheless, that was the home to mm, main uh, Jewish organizations, uh, cultural society, society of mm, Jewish culture, society of Jewish folk music, uh, historical ethnographic society, which were run by the mm, uh, Russian Jewish intellectual elite. It was not, of course, the only cultural center, Jewish center in the Russian Empire, but uh, probably along with the Vilna, Odessa, and Kiev, if we don't count uh, Poland, uh, Petersburg was one of those four major centers with particular focus on uh, Russian uh, Jewish uh, uh, culture. This was also a place where Yiddish and Hebrew and Russian periodicals were uh, edited and published. So there is a paradox that the cultural capital of Russian Jews was actually a city where Jews were not strictly speaking, allowed to leave, which of course created a very peculiar situation. And, uh, and yet uh, there was a significant population, partly invisible, uh, which created a peculiar situation and certainly um, quite a few people uh, on the right resented, obviously, uh, this situation. And uh, first and foremost, uh, Tsar himself, Nicholas II, was very much against granting Jews uh, legal equality. That's why probably uh, it wouldn't be possible at all until 1917. But uh, there were also uh, people among uh, liberal intelligence uh, and um, artists and quite prominent figures that we will see in a moment who also felt uneasy about that kind of strong presence of Jews in Russian culture. And uh, I think one of the uh, best um, examples of this anxiety is uh, this article by uh, Andrei Belli, uh, you can say quite an infamous uh, text that appeared in a symbolist um, uh, journal, the uh, in 1909, and this is a long quote in Russian. Uh, I will summarize it in English. Uh, basically, uh, what Belli is saying, and in a very colorful uh, language that uh, Jews are producing so-called stamped culture. He called it Stempelovane uh, Kultur, which means it's an inauthentic culture that is brought from abroad and 
that doesn't really reflect the true essence of, um, of the Russian people. Uh, so that Russian culture is actually dominated by those uh, cosmopolitan, we can say, using slightly anachronistic term, ruthless cosmopolitan critics, editors, publishers, journalists, uh, and uh, they are incapable of understanding, I quote here, uh, the depth of the national spirit in its expressions through sound, color, and words. And their cultural activity, as Billy put it, uh, contaminated the, uh, I quote, clear streams of our native tongue with faceless Esperanto of international lingo. It actually sounds familiar. Uh, what those people did, and it's really, I think, quite funny, they uh, put Sholemash instead of Gogol, Mayor Bear was placed next to Beethoven, and Matisse next to Brubeck. Of course, Matisse was not Jewish, but still. Uh, um, now, uh, why was that? And this is a really interesting twist that we have here uh, towards uh, really racialized discourse, because legally, and the whole 19th century, Jews were perceived as a religious category, obviously. If a Jew converted to Christianity, he or she ceased to be Jewish and got equal legal rights, which was not exactly the case, especially in the 19th century, but still. For uh, Billy, uh, Jews were racially different, and they were in no position to understand what he called Aryan culture. So, of course, this whole uh, Aryan uh, discourse was imported wholesale from Germany, and there were, uh, at the same time, uh, discussions about place of Jews in German culture. So I'm not going into uh, details in this presentations, but uh, we know that Billy was influenced by his friend Emily Metner, and in turn, all these ideas go back to Nietzsche's, uh, mm, oh, Wagner's, I'm sorry, uh, Richard Wagner's famous uh, essay, Judaism in Music, where he argued that Jews could be great interpreter, but they cannot be creator, creators. So it's interesting to kind of just uh, think about this shift from religious to raci racial uh, discourse in uh, the understanding of Jews. At the same time, Belly argued that uh, the only way to resolve this problem would be to give Jews equal rights. Because as long as Jews are discriminated, we can't really, it's not decent really to do anything against them. We can't really fight them. Uh, in the field of culture as long as this is the only field where they can realize their talents. And he said that if you open other areas of activity to them, if you allow them to be um, politicians, because he said Jews are born statesmen, they would gladly move into that areas and do something else, maybe something good in business and politics, and they will leave culture to this mm, racially pure uh, Russians. Well, we can, of course, say that that's what happened after the revolution. Um, so what was the Jewish reaction to this uh, kind of argument? Um, some people, like uh, Vladimir Shabatinsky, the prominent young, ambitious Zionist leader, basically agreed. And he said that Jews didn't really produce anything significant in Russian culture. So they should concentrate on creating their own culture and uh, preferred in their own languages, in, in Hebrew, first and foremost, and also in uh, Yiddish. Shalom Ash, uh, who was mentioned by Bele, and whom Bele actually knew and uh, liked him, apparently, personally. 
but uh, nevertheless, uh, well, Shalom Ash in his novel, uh, Petersburg, that was published in 1927, actually even before that in his novel, Mary, 1913, he uh, portrayed a few of those deracinated Jews uh, who uh, were pretty ugly and quite fit that stereotype that Billy created. Uh, one of those characters, the worst, the ugliest uh, one, uh, was actually modeled very closely on uh, Akim Valinsky, a very prominent Russian critic. I don't really know why Ash hated Valinsky so much, uh, but uh, you could see how that kind of stereotype was um, appropriated and applied to a very particular uh, character. Uh, those ideas were also shared by some German Jewish intellectuals, and uh, Jakob Wasserman, for example, wrote also about 1913 that Jews, and the Jew as an European, is, as he put it, a literat, a kind of journalist. Mm. Uh, but to become a genuine creator, a Jew had to become an Oriental. So this is kind of self uh, orientalizing uh, discourse that was quite prominent uh, among. Zionist, among cultural Zionists, both in Germany, including Austria and, uh, and Russia. What I'm interested in, however, is not uh, those authors, but uh, other ones who took, I think, this problem seriously and um, who tried to deal with this problem and somehow resolve that difficult, really, uh, conundrum of uh, how can we as Jews really become part of Russian culture? And what I will try to show today is how, what kind of role was played by the place, the urban uh, space of St. Petersburg. And uh, by trying to inscribe themselves into Russian literature, I think those of them, you know, I'll be speaking about three different writers mm, who lived in St. Petersburg or Leningrad, that's what they tried to do, they inscribe themselves into Russian literature through by inscribing themselves into St. Petersburg text of Russian literature. So uh, my first case study is Lev Lunds. I think he's a pretty well-known writer, one of the founding um, figures in the group that called Serapion Brothers um, in the early Soviet Leningrad. There were quite a few mm, Jews in that group. You can see that he really died very young. He had some serious uh, illness, and uh, as uh, we can see, and this would be handout three, right? So we done with uh, uh, Bialy, so it's on the mm, uh, other side of the page. Uh, this is a, um, a fragment from his letter, which I think he actually didn't send, so it's a draft to Maxim Gorky, in which he uh, reflects on, on this um, on this pro uh, problem. So uh, was it the right thing uh, to do for me to go into literature? So it's my translation, so it's really clumsy. No, uh, not that I uh, had no trust in my abilities. I do, and maybe even too daringly, but I'm a Jew, a committed, a faithful one, and I enjoy it. Uh, and I'm a Russian writer, but I am a Russian Jew, and Russia is my homeland, and I love Russia more than any other country. How can one reconcile this? For myself, I have recon uh, reconciled everything. It's all clear and pure, but other people think differently. Other people say a Jew cannot be a, a Russian um, writer. Um, further down, he actually 
when you first uh, directly to Bely and uh, Remezov, and uh, he says uh, that uh, I and I. Uh, I like a great idea and a great engaging plot. I'm drawn to long things, tragedy, novel, necess necessarily with a plot. And I cannot stand the of and Billy. I love Western literature better than the Russian. People around me say that I'm not Russian, that I like plot because I'm not Russian, and that nothing will come out of uh, me. So uh, I think he puts it very, very clearly, and I think it's clear that he is directly responding to that problem, and though he doesn't really mm, know the mm, answer. Um, the, um, unfortunately, as you can see, he died at the age of 24. Um, he died in Hamburg, uh, and he was not really able to resolve this issue fully. But I want to turn to one uh, of his short stories, uh, which uh, is uh, uh, titled The Homeland. And um, it's one of his three stories that deal with explicitly Jewish uh, themes. And the only one that was actually published in a Jewish publication, it was published in a short-lived Yevreyski Almanach, the Jewish Almanach, one of the last Russian Jewish publications, published in 1923. So the story is dedicated to Lund's um, friend and fellow Serapion brother, Benjamin Kaverin, of course, a very famous Soviet light, uh, writer. It opens with these two friends sitting over glasses of um, Samagon, of homebrew, on a long summer Friday evening in post-revolutionary ethnograph, which still refers to Peter Lund, Lev, the autobiographical narrator, tells Vinyamin that every Jew has, and I quote, an ancient prophet in him. Vinyamin responds that Jews disgust him because they are dirty. Trying to help his friend reconnect with his Jewish self, Lev takes him to the synagogue, where through a little door they enter uh, some kind of alternative reality. They find themselves in the ancient Babylon, which looks like a replica of Petrograd. I quote, a great city, straight flying streets, exact square corners, and giant silent houses, which also brings to mind, of course, Bailey's Petersburg. Here, Lev turns into an assimilated Babylonian <laughs> Jew named Yehuda, and it could be very well his um, Hebrew name, Yehuda Lev, is a very common combination. Once uh, um, in the squalid Jewish quarter across the Euphrates, River, uh, St. Petersburg didn't have a Jewish quarter across the Neva, so it's interesting how it's a typical arrangement for a European city where Jews in the Middle Ages would be kind of pushed out and they would live in a suburb on the other side of the river, like in Krakow. Um, so it, he uh, hears uh, a sermon by a prophet named Binyomin, obviously it's a previous re reincarnation of Kaveri, uh, who calls on Jews to return to their homeland. Eventually, uh, Elev and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Yehuda and Binyamin become friends. And then uh, Binyamin leaves uh, to uh, his homeland in Jerusalem. After many years uh, in the Babylonian captivity, Yehuda decides to follow the prophet's call and to leave the decadent cosmopolitan metropolis for the Jerusalem homeland. Uh, and on his painful journey through a desert, he encounters Binyamin, who left Babylon earlier and had become a Jewish zealot since then. Instead of welcoming his exhausted friend, Binyamin orders his Judean, Judean warriors to kill Yehuda because, I quote, he has betrayed his people and shaved off, off his beard. End of quote. Now recovering from this drunken nightmare, the narrator finds himself back in Petersburg in front of a shop window. And there he sees um, his reflection um, in the following 
form, and this is uh, uh, on handouts number four. Uh, but uh, a little man, bald, with a narrow forehead and moist, cunning eyes. It is I, dirty and abominable. I recognize myself, and I understood everything beautiful and ancient in my, um, in me, my high forehead and enraptured eyes. Everything remained on the road which runs through Circesium and Ribla to Jerusalem. Obviously, this contrast very typical uh, dichotomy between the Jew and the Hebrew contemporary uh, sort of uh, decadent uh, Jewish figure and this grand masculine um, uh, uh, ancient um, Hebrew. So Neva, it's called Rav Noah, uh, uh, he, uh, right. Uh, so the, the Petersburg is described as a double of uh, the imaginary ancient Babylon. It spreads across the Neva River like Babylon did across the Euphrates. And the sky over the city, and this is the final words, the skies of my homeland, but foreign, Radnoe no Chujoe. So uh, I will try to demonstrate further uh, in other examples that this imaginary connection between St. Petersburg and ancient Orient uh, is uh, a specific Jewish topos, I think, in that uh, Petersburg uh, text. So the homeland, as we can see, offers no uh, resolution to the problem of a, a Jew as an alien in Russian literature. What it does, however, it uh, creates a peculiar imaginary Jewish space and the underground Babylon as a mirror image of Petersburg. The description of the endless straight avenues of both cities can be read as a reference to Andrei Belli's uh, Petersburg, actually. To enter that imaginary ancient space, one has to open a little secret door in the synagogue, which is presumably known only among Jews. The homeland can be read both as an attempt to escape the pressure of the Jewish question into an imaginary space, as well as a bitterly ironic recognition of the futility of such an attempt. A Russian Jewish writers, writer remains stuck uh, between the two cultures and doomed to either die in the desert trying to cross the divide or stay forever under this Radnoe no Chujoe Nieba, this homeland and for, uh, alien foreign sky. His only place uh, of escape is an imaginary oriental space underneath the real urban, urban landscape of uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, my next example comes, of course, from a much more famous writer, from Osip Mandelstam. Uh, and uh, this is uh, his uh, memoir, Shum. Vrebeyevich uh, is probably one of the most interesting texts from the point of view of that kind of Jewish discourse and the way that Mandelstam tried to resist and then also adopt to this uh, discourse. Uh, so I will start with a fragment that's uh, number five. It's one of his, I guess, one of the most famous uh, segments of that uh, book uh, where Mandelstam describes uh, St. Petersburg uh, and, and this what we call Judaic chaos. That's the title of the chapter. Uh, all the elegant mirage of Petersburg was merely a dream, a brilliant covering thrown over the abyss, while round about there sprawled the chaos of Judaism. Not a motherland, not a house, not a hearth, but precisely a chaos, the unknown womb whence I had issued, about which I made vague conjectures and fled always fled. The Judaic chaos showed through all the chinks of the stone-clad Petersburg apartment in the thread uh, of ruin in the cap hanging in the room of the, the guest uh, from the provinces in the spiky script of the unread books of Genesis thrown into the dust one 
child lower than Yodan Schiller in the threads of the black and yellow ritual. Just we can have a series of lectures just above this uh, two uh, paragraphs there, really very uh, dense. Um, but uh, I just want to add one more. Uh, the strong, bloody Russian year rolled through the calendar with decorated eggs, Christmas trees, steel skates from Finland, December, uh, gaily bedecked Finnish truck drivers, and the villa. But mixed up with all this, there was a phantom, uh, use the word freezer in Russian. The new year is in September, and the strange, cheerless holidays grating upon the ear with their harsh names, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So, as we can see, like Lunds, and they were actually, they knew each other quite well uh, for about a year or two. Uh, Mandelstam imagined St. Petersburg as a kind of modern superstructure over an ancient foundation. For him, however, this foundation is not than the ancient metropolis, but a Judaic chaos that envelopes the mirage of the imperial uh, capital. Mandelstam's Judaic house is a Freudian type uh, unknown womb, a dark hole uh, where he came from and from where he unsuccessfully attempts to flee. This fear of uh, the pervasive but largely invisible Jewish presence seems like an internalized articulation of Bailey's anxiety. So we can think of Bailey uh, who imagined Jews everywhere. They were uh, invisible, but they were really penetrating Russian culture like this Judaic chaos, I think, uh, enveloping the mm, uh, beautiful mirage uh, the Spakov not business of uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, but there are a few uh, obvious differences between Lunds and Mandelstam. Lunds, mm, ancient Judaism, was aggressively masculine, while Mandelstam's is threateningly feminine. Judah, Lunds' alter ego, mm, or Yehuda, uh, yearned to return to his ancient homeland but was not allowed to because he symbolically cut himself off his native land and culture by shaving off his beard, an attribute of his Hebrew masculinity. Mandelstam, on the contrary, fears to be torn away from the beautiful mirage of Petersburg and drawn back uh, to the chaos of his Jewish family. And while Lunds makes no reference to Christianity, of course, Mandelstam juxtaposes the Russian Christian calendar with the jolly holidays against the Jewish Rizek, phantom of ghost, specter with its strange and gloomy festivals. At home, this contrast replays in the spatial arrangement, arrangement of the family uh, library. The Pentateuch set and the uh, Russian history of Jews are relegated to the bottom shelf, I quote. Uh, this was the Judaic chaos thrown into the dust, end of quote. On the middle shelf, I quote, above this, above this Jewish ruins, there began the orderly arrangement of books. There were the Germans, Schiller, Goethe, Kerner, and Shakespeare in German, end of quote. And on the top uh, were, I quote, my mother's Russian books, Pushkin in Isakov's 1876 edition. Uh, it's really interesting to try and unpack this text in terms of his family relationship, what we know now about his family, his father and his mother, their education, their background, and I just don't have time for that, but that's also part of my uh, project. So now applying uh, this metaphorical opposition of uh, brilliant covering uh, to again versus the chaos um, of the urban space of St. Petersburg, Mandelstam contrasts the brilliant facade of the capital to the chaotic locus of Jewishness at capital's uh, backside. And this would be handout, uh, number, um, number six on the handout. Uh, this is how he describes the Jewish um, 
area of St. Petersburg. Uh, there is a Jewish quarter in Petersburg. It begins just before the Mariinsky Theater, where the ticket scalpers freeze beyond the prison angel of the Litovsky Castle, which was burned during the revolution. Um, they're, uh, they're on on Targovoy Street, one sees Jewish shop uh, signs with pictures of a bull and a cow, women with an abundance of false hair showing under their kerchiefs and mincing along in overcoats reaching down to the ground, old men full of experience and love of their uh, children. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, so this is the Mariinsky Theater, kind of neoclassical facade that looks at that imperial part of uh, St. Petersburg. This is the uh, Litovsky uh, castle that was uh, burned, as you said, during the revolution. It's a prison. Uh, of course, association of uh, Jews with Lithuania goes back to his memories and his m relatives who come from Lithuania and threaten that kind of uh, decorum of the St. Petersburg family. Uh, his father and his mother, I mean, all this really mm, helps understand uh, his um, anxiety. Um, so uh, the Jewish space is dominated by trade and commerce. Ticket scalpers shop on the Targova commercial street where also his uh, Hebrew teacher comes from. Uh, one can also see some hints at falsity in the references to false hair combined with the abundance of children. Uh, as I said, the prison named Litovsky Castle it suggests a negative reference to Lithuania, the place of origins of Mandelstam family. Um, and the synagogue, which he describes, um, the synagogue with its conical caps and onion domes loses itself like some elegant exotic fig tree amongst the shabby uh, buildings. Uh, that's the synagogue uh, in the post on a postcard of around the same time. Now it looks slightly different. Uh, so the synagogue that was built in the fashionable Moorish style imitating other Central European uh, synagogues at that time, it also has a distinctly uh, foreign and oriental uh, look. Um, that's the inside of the synagogue, the opening. Um, both Lunz and Mandelstam um, uh, ascribe to Jews and Jewishness a certain otherworldly quality of zombies or ghosts. Mandelstam describes the Jewish calendar as prefect, as I said. Uh, Jews belong to a different time and space and their presence undermines the stability and order of the imperial capital. Of course, the image of ghost uh, is prominent in many Petersburg texts, from Pushkin's Day of Space, to Gogol and Dostoevsky, to Andrei Belli. Uh, the city itself is often sometimes imagined as a kind of a ghost, um, which was conjured up by the will of its founder, Peter the Great. Belli went even further and associated the ghostly aspect of the city with the terrorists, revolutionaries, and also with Jews. But both uh, Lutz and Mandelstam in different ways used the ghost trope to carve out a specifically Jewish space as a kind of metaphorical asylum for Jewishness. On the one hand, this enables them to inscribe themselves as Jews into the uh, Petersburg text uh, and to it into Russian literary literature by appropriating one of its central tropes. On the other hand, the identification with ghosts alludes to their precarious status in the Russian literary tradition. Things really change uh, as we move to Hebrew literature. And my third example comes from uh, the a very interesting uh, Hebrew poet uh, named Hein Lensky, um, who is, of course, much less known than Mandelstam or Lunds, uh, even though uh, 
recently there was uh, a lot of uh, a revival of interest in Lenske and his collected poems were published in, uh, two, three, two years ago in Israel with very good um, article by Dan Miron, uh, two articles by Dan Miron and Aminadav Dickman, who specifically, uh, Dickman specifically um, examines Lenske's connection to Russian poetry. So uh, as you can see, he was born in uh, today's Belarus near Slonim in a village uh, in dire poverty. Uh, his parents uh, left uh, him, uh, they divorced and uh, moved away. Uh, so he spent his childhood with his uh, grandparents. His grandfather was a uh, watchman in the orchards and water carrier. Uh, he uh, got some education during the German occupation in 1915-1918. Uh, he went to a school where he learned German. He also uh, uh, learned German uh, poetry. He studied for about two years at the Hebrew seminary in Vilna. And in 1923, he decided to uh, reunite with his father. So he illegally crossed the Soviet border. He was detained. Uh, finally, he reached Baku, where his father lived, but uh, things didn't really uh, were not really good for them. So he ended up uh, living in Leningrad. So in 1925, he uh, came to Leningrad. He worked there at a factory, uh, really doing very heavy uh, job. I think they were uh, manufacturing uh, rails for mm, streetcars. Uh, and 1934, he was arrested for the first time uh, for mm, his um, um, Hebrew uh, writing, Hebrew poetry. He was released in 1939. He lived for two years in Maladishara. And then uh, 41, he was arrested again. In 42, 43, he died in Gulag somewhere in Krasnoyarsk area. So really very tragic uh, life. Uh, as we can mm, see, his poetry is really amazing uh, in its richness and its sophistication. So he appropriated images and themes and prosody from Russian, Polish, and German poetry merging them uh, with a wide range of Hebrew poetic modes. His favorite poets were Pushkin, Mitzkevich, and Heine. Um, and um, around 1930, he composed a um, cycle of 10 uh, sonnets about Leningrad. Uh, well, his name, that's his mother's name. So it's not uh, a really made up pseudonym. His uh, father's name was Steinzon, but he took this name as his pseudonym, obviously, with a reference to Pushkin. Uh, so uh, the, the sonnets, as Aminadav Dickman uh, describes them, are, um, I quote, a kind of a stroll through the northern capital. In the first sonnet, the poet arrives uh, in the city, feels sadness about being a stranger, and wonders uh, what to do at the banks of the Neva. The tenth sonnet is some kind of burlesque farewell. The poet laughs wildly, breaks glass, forgets his friends and enemies, and leaves uh, as we quote, with the stones of the mm, city. Oh, this is a group of uh, this uh, Hebrew kind of lovers of Hebrew language in Leningrad with Lenski at the center. He has about maybe 10 um, uh, followers. Uh, and then um, apparently somebody denounced them and they were arrested. So uh, in the first sonnet, Lenski uh, introduces himself as a, I quote, native of the Lithuanian woods and a younger brother of the bison from the Bielavezha forest, end of quote. He felt himself as an outsider both in the Soviet Leningrad and in the Russian culture, of course, and carefully cultivated this persona in his poetry. Um, I will look specifically at the sonnet number four, uh, in which he, uh, the poet, 
the lyric hero, encounters an Assyrian shoe polisher who has his boot near the uh, Bronze Horseman monument. Uh, that's about 1925, around the time uh, roughly when this happened. Um, and uh, he, uh, the poet one, uh, wonders what this descendant of the mighty ancient king Shalmanazar has to do with the, as he calls, the copper horseman who split the air with his arm as if he uh, quelled the roar of the Niva. Uh, he wants to show to the Assyrian a greater miracle uh, rather than the Russian Tsar sculpture. Uh, uh, who tries to control the elements. And so he takes him across the Neva and uh, to, uh, to the two stone sphinxes, right, uh, on the Vasilis Kiosk, Vasili Island. These uh, sphinxes are real Egyptian uh, uh, sculptures, were brought to St. Petersburg from Egypt in uh, 1830 and installed on the Neva embankment across the Academy Palace. Like the hero poet and the Assyrian shoe polisher, these sphinxes are exiles from their ancestral homeland to the south. The poet invites the shoe polisher to take an imaginary journey uh, back uh, home. Um, okay, the sonnet is uh, on the last page here, uh, number seven. I'm just, I'll be reading the, just the, mm, my, my translation where I try to be uh, faithful, but doesn't really sound, of course, anything like, like the poem. Here are the twin sphinxes that sunk in the northern waters when they arrived. I am a Hebrew, you are an Assyrian. He used the word Iso. There, these are our horses. Let's jump on their backs and with bare forehead, like living statues, we will ride to the victory. And we rode from, as we rode from Egypt up to here. The sonnet exemplifies the complexity of Lenski's appropriation of the symbolic imagery of Russian Petersburg text. He accurately reproduces the topography of the city, of course. He, uh, the supremacy of Russian um, capital is challenged by biblical references and allusions. Some of them are encoded in Lenski's Hebrew vocabulary, such as calling the Neva River Yeor, the biblical name for the Niles and the Tigris. Peter's raised, raised hand, uh, as we can see uh, here, um, is uh, usually interpreted as a commanding gesture pointing to the site where the new capital would be built. But it is reinterpreted by Lenski as a futile attempt to stop the raising waters. Peter tries in vain to imitate Moses, who did manage to split the Red Sea by raising his arm. At the same time, the two oriental characters, the Hebrew poet and the Assyrian shoe polisher, are also portrayed as helpless and somewhat pathetic figures, in line with the familiar St. Petersburg trope of the little man. Their attempt to mount the sphinxes in order to escape from Leningrad ironically evokes the episode in Pushkin's The Bronze Horseman, where the protagonist Yevgeny, trying to escape from the rising waters, mounts a decorative sculpture of lion guarding the entrance to one of the palaces near the, uh, Peter's uh, monument. Um, the uh, motif of uh, flooding, real or imaginary, is central to Lenski's Leningrad poetry. Um, really, water dominates. Uh, it's everywhere. It is not clear whether Lenski personally experienced the flooding of 1924, I think he came a little bit later, which happened uh, exactly 100 years after the one depicted by Pushkin. But he actively exploited this symbolic uh, uh, parallel. Lenski's focus on the destructive power of water is a good illustration of Lotman's observation. I quote, in the Petersburg picture, 
water and stone change places. Water is eternal, existing before stone and conquering it, while stone is temporal and transitory. Uh, water can destroy. Uh, Lenski's most uh, ambitious uh, and most uh, the richest uh, Leningrad poem is called uh, Delator, um, a parodic take on the Bronze Horseman. The poem was written in 1930, and it was published in the Tel Aviv newspaper Davar in 1933. That's the publication in the Davar, which I think shows really how actually naive Lenski was, because he thought that this writing this kind of openly, I would say, anti-Soviet poem and having it published in Palestine would certainly result in uh, some kind of repercussions, and indeed he was arrested a year um, later. Uh, so with all his sophistication in poetry, I think he remained a very uh, kind of maybe aloof to reality and, and, and naive in some political sense. The title itself is interesting because it uses a Latin word for informer and denunciator, which entered the Hebrew language in late antiquity. The um, use of this antiquated Latin warming um, instead of the most common Hebrew word malshin, which also appears in the poem, may suggest a similarity uh, between the Roman and Russian empires as two oppressors of uh, Jews. It can also has an ironic reference to the Latin inscription on Peter's monument. Uh, uh, Lenski conducts his uh, playful dialogue with Pushkin's poem not only at the plot level, but also at the level of prosody, revealing his virtuoso mastery of Hebrew versification. Uh, the latter opens with the dedication, and that's the uh, last uh, on the handout, the last, that's number seven, um, to brethren, brethren condemned to slave labor. And again, he is using here the Hebrew term Perech, that is used for Jewish slave labor in Egypt. In fact, as if anticipating his own imprisonment. Incidentally, in the Siberia, he translated, he has translated quite a lot from Russian, uh, but he also translated Pushkin's uh, famous poetic uh, uh, epistle to Siberia. Uh, the first two lines connect the two geographical ends of the empire, Finland, where the pedestal stone came uh, from, and Siberia, the source of bronze. Um, the poet, the, the hero of the poem, is described as an Elam Hapalit, a young refugee. Uh, he stands on the bank of the rising Neva, watching people run away from the flood in a manner imitating Pushkin's casual conversational style. And let his, how Lenski introduces his protagonist, I will try to read it in Hebrew just so that people even, those who don't know Hebrew, they can see how skillfully he imitates the phonetics of Pushkin uh, poetry. Ganav listim opoliti, ve ech me id ben ezo shevet, Rusi ivri fini leti, Raitachen losad vele shelet, Mikol shaken adam achyesh le shem Yosef, Shem ze hotem zmaneno, Bonikraim an sheh hashen, Hatakifim bamdinoneno, Pan Yosef vechaver Yosef. So, uh, mm, that's, I'm sorry, I, I should, yes. So, uh, how shall I call my hero? Uh, here he is. He is not, his nationality is not clear. Um, I will, uh, and then I have a name for him, and this is Yosef, and this is a great name for our age because there are two mighty rulers, and he calls them, uh, with a nice pun, Anshe Hashem, instead of Anshe Hashem, uh, Pan Yosef, obviously Pelsutsky, and Comrade Yosef. So, uh, this, our Yosef, 
uh, Yosef is stuck between two mighty dictatorial regimes. Both of those, Yosef and Yosef, they were both in prison. So there are some similarities, but obviously there are also uh, differences. So the only thing that we know about Yosef's past is that, uh, like his famous namesakes, he spent some time in prison. Uh, now, walking absent-mindedly amongst the uh, running crowd, Yosef comes uh, to uh, the uh, Peter's uh, monument. In a flash of memory, he recalls how he was suddenly arrested at this site. Uh, back then, it appeared to him that it was the statue that denounced him with this gesture uh, to the secret police uh, by pointing his finger on him. Now, Yosef feels that he can take revenge on the delata. Uh, and he, uh, uh, quote again in, in English, uh, there were days when you built the city, and now days have come when your glory is taken away. And your city is called by a foreign name, now you are merely an informer, Malshinata Delata, so he uses both words, yeah, both terms. Yosef, uh, end of quote. Yosef uh, dares Peter to denounce him now to the guards of the new regime, who are nowhere to be seen in the abandoned city. Suddenly it occurs to him that the statue attempts to run away, and he grabs it by the tail, and in the morning, as the flooding subsides and life gets back to the normal, uh, poor Yosef is found grasping the horse's tail behind the statue. The ending obviously plays on Pushkin's poem, where the madman Evgeny is found dead, uh, who's tried away, run away from uh, Peter. But Lenski's version is somewhat milder. Yosef is not dead, but sent to a madhouse. Uh, Pushkin's Yevgeny tried to run away from the pursuing horseman uh, after the defiant act of threatening the authority of the Tsar, while Yosef, on the contrary, tried to prevent the statue from running uh, away from the city, which no longer belongs to the Tsars. Both uh, characters, however, end up in madness. As Julie Buckler remains, uh, remarks in her study of the Petersburg uh, text in uh, Russian literature, the vocabulary, well, the vocabulary of mental illness is part of the Petersburg lexicon, which includes a rich selection of works for a troubled inner state. So Lansky fits this uh, description very well. Um, he uh, draws upon many layers of the Hebrew uh, language, and uh, he, using that language primarily, he can address the Jewish problem, as it were, um, implicitly. He doesn't really need to deal with that predicament that Mabdushtam and Lunds um, had to uh, do, uh, because these associations are really in the uh, language um, itself. Um, the, even the character is not specifically Jewish, even though probably he is. The stateless, deracinated, denationalized refugee embodies the type of ruthless cosmopolitan that was so uh, despised by Bill and other guardians of Russian national tradition. Now he is caught between two authoritarian regimes of our countries, as he calls them. Uh, which uh, Lenski pl uh, places side by side, uh, Pilsudskis and uh, Stalin. And just imagine this the poem published in 1933, and clearly uh, some people in the Soviet Union could read it. Could read it. Uh, Yosef can uh, also be seen as a reincarnation of the Russian literary figure of a little man, someone who tries but fails to rebel against the ruling order. If St. Petersburg is, as some critics have argued, the main hero of the Bronze Horseman, then the Neva is the main hero of Lenski's poetry. The complex symbolism of water brings together three different metaphorical layers, the ancient Egyptian slavery, the dis uh, destructive elements uh, uh, threatening to obliterate the city, and the Russian Revolution as the force which destroyed the monarchy. And indeed, in the first poem, he sees, he looks into the river into the water, and he sees the image of uh, Mikhail Bakunin, of a famous anarchist. Now, conclusion. Right, I'm 
almost on time. Um, as I try to demonstrate, the Petersburg cityscape, real or imaginary, can provide some objective correlatives for Jewishness. For the Russian Jewish uh, uh, authors rooted in the cellular age modernism, such as Lunds and Mandelstam, finding or creating a Jewish space in the city was a way of dealing with the predicament of foreigners in Russian literature, which was imposed upon them by the radical, racialized discourse of Russian modernism. In the end, the space did not mm, offer safe haven, but in different ways. Lunds realized that his attempt to escape the cosmopolitan Babylon of Russian literature was suicidal, and he was doomed to remain as an um, unredeemed, uh, as a quote, ugly and abominable Jew under the foreign sky of his homeland. Mandelstam, on the contrary, was unable to cut off his ties with the mat maternal Judaic house, which led him to further frustrations as demonstrated in his appropriation of anti-Semitic rhetoric in the fourth prose, which is your third prose. The situation is different when we move from Russian to Hebrew. Now it's not a Jewish author who tries uh, to find his place in Russian literature by carving out his space in its capital and the text of the capital. Rather, it's a Hebrew poet who wants to appropriate Russian poetry for his own literature. He can turn the problem of Jewish foreignness in Russian literature on its head. Lenski celebrates the destructive power of water, which can be also interpreted as an objective correlative to the Soviet regime. And the latter is perhaps a most radical revision of the Bronze Horseman theme than we can find uh, in Russian literature. The emperor and the little man switch roles. Now is the statue that tries to run away, while the homeless refugee tries to stop it. Of course, in the end, both Yevgeny and Yosef go mad, but it's Yosef, but it's Yosef who stays alive, which leaves us some hope. So uh, just a few last uh, concluding words to open it up as we look into Yiddish literature. I think we find um, similar tropes in, uh, in, no in the novel form, uh, St. Petersburg as uh, Egypt, uh, the Tsar as a pharaoh, um, we uh, also have uh, a lot of ghosts that appear in Leningrad in this, uh, in this remarkable uh, uh, reportage by Dernister where he meets all kinds of people as he comes to Leningrad in 1932. He meets Dostoevsky, he meets Karakozov, he meets Akaki Akakievich, Gogol. He has very interesting conversations with all of them and the city is actually infested with ghosts. With ghosts. So uh, there are certainly a lot of shared um, elements with this uh, main uh, Peterbusky text of Russian literature, but I think what I try to demonstrate is that uh, we can see and we can try and kind of distill specific Jewish elements, Jewish tropes, certainly without insisting too much on their specificity, but there is this kind of dimension that I think is interesting and sometimes it goes actually, it's, it's more radical than what Russian literature does. I think that's, that's all from me. Thank you.